Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. Today, we've got an exciting show. We are going to be discussing the cattle market hearings that happened yesterday in the House Ag Committee. Jackie Fatka from Farm Progress will be joining me here in just a moment. Then in segment two, we're going to talk with Brian Ernest. He's the lead economist for animal protein at CoBank, and he has been digging into the impact of these higher prices throughout the animal protein industry, looking at feed costs and what that's doing to cattle producers, pork producers, poultry producers. And then on the flip side, what are these high retail prices for meats doing to the consumer? And that conversation might get a little hotter. This morning, it was announced that the U.S. GDP declined in the first quarter of 2022. This was a surprise to most of the economists who were looking ahead to this report. GDP quarter one 2022 down 1.4%, um, mainly due, mainly down due to a slowdown in uh, trade inventories. Basically, we saw the, the trade deficit balloon, which is partially what caused those numbers. But just a reminder, folks, one down quarter means we're 50% of the way to a recession. That's two back-to-back -back quarters of shrinkage in the economy. So we'll be talking about just what these higher prices are doing more broadly. We'll have that conversation with Brian. And then in segment three, we're going to talk about water recycling as this drought continues to intensify. And our meteorological friends, John Baranek from DTN and Greg Solier, talk about on the program this La Nina might be sticking around through the summer, raising these drought concerns even longer. Pat Sinecropi will be joining me to discuss just what water recycling is here in 2022. And then at the end, we're going to talk to Mike Milley, CEO of Join Bio. They were recently acquired by Ginkgo Biologicals, and that space is changing. Mike will have an update for us at the end of the program. But first, let's talk cattle. Joining me now is Jackie Fatka. Jackie, I understand you got to tune in to some of the uh, hearing yesterday in the House Ag Committee. Yeah, there was a House Ag Committee that lasted almost five and a half hours on Wednesday and, and Tuesday, actually. Uh, they had one on the Senate side. So a lot of talk on Capitol Hill about the cattle markets and some of the legislative proposals and some of the ways that Everybody's got their own thoughts on how to fix this and um, maybe maybe some questions of whether it will fix it or create more problems. So great discussion and, and a lot of input being heard on Capitol Hill this week. And in yesterday's hearing, there were two different panels, as I understand it. Well, the first was cattle producers, folks involved with the cattle industry and their associations. And then panel two has gotten a lot of press, and that was the four CEOs of Tyson, JBS, National, and Cargill. Jackie, let's talk about the producers first. What arguments did cattle producers bring before the House Ag Committee? You know, I think... Um both in, in both the Senate and the House, uh, they, they have the producer voice, which I think is really, really important. But, you know, something that's challenging in the cattle market is you have cow-calf, you've got feedlots, you've got uh, – there's, there's many different levels of the producer voice, right? And so they did have um, those different voices from those different segments of the cattle sector. Um, one young farmer from Missouri who is a cow-calf producer in – you know, they're they're sometimes just stuck with taking whatever one bid they might get. Um, but, you know, I think one main message that we heard from uh, National Cattlemen's Beef Association representative um, who was a, a producer from Minnesota was, you know, don't take away our our alternative marketing arrangements, these AMAs that sometimes we hear about. But that's the ability for a, a feedlot or or even a, a processor to to market whether that's antibiotic-free beef or maybe that's a certain type of processing type of benefit that they're trying to 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 get through the supply chain, right? So how do they communicate back to the producer level what a consumer is willing to pay for? And um, and and they. You know, it's it's one thing to say um, we want to have more cash market sales because that that sounds good, but in certain regions that's that's a much bigger ask than it is in other regions. You know, in Iowa and Minnesota, there's there is a lot of sold on the cash market, but when you look at Oklahoma and Texas, 
it's not. And so it definitely has varying impacts depending on what region. And in some of this proposal, they've tried to tweak that and, and, and account for the fact that they wouldn't require as much trade. At one point, this was a, a 50% requirement across the board. Well, they've kind of looked back and, you know, states that were at 85 to 90% in these marketing arrangements, if they had to go back to 50%, that's going to be a, a lot that they're going to have to deal with. And and one thing on the Senate side that was talked about, you know, it, it's great to have more buyers because everybody wants more buyers to, to offer you more money. But if you have more buyers, but they're not able to, none of them are able to offer you more money because they don't have the ability to use these marketing arrangements or they're not able to negotiate ahead of time what they what they need and what they want, then you may end up losing money. And unfortunately, that lost money is probably going to go back to less money in the pockets of farmers. And I, I don't think that that's anyone's intent. And that was something that some of those farmers really tried to testify and imprint on those congressional members this week. So that's on the producer side. We were watching this one closely for the statements from the big meatpacking CEOs. Jackie, when they took the stage, what arguments were they bringing? I imagine they're all opposed to this legislation. You know, I, I think they are. And, and in some ways, um, it's, it, it's interesting, right? Everybody wants to, to find a, find someone to point the finger at. Um, and cattle producers know that the cattle market is cyclical. And, um, you know, really, as you look at what happens and how it happens over time, um, you know, sometimes they get blamed for things that maybe aren't necessarily their part to blame. You know, one of the chief executive officers from Cargill said, you know, they, they do purchase about a third of their cash, cattle on a cash basis. So, you know, they're not using all negotiated trade. Um, and, you know, sometimes these big four do get blamed for concentration, but efficiency is is what has driven it this far. And really the overall concentration of the cattle beef processing sector hasn't really changed over the last 30 years. It's been, and it kind of happened because of some of the regulations that made it harder for those small and medium uh, operators to sustain. But, you know, one of the kind of interesting points that, that was mentioned, um, and, and now I'm forgetting which, which operation it was, but they had a, an Iowa plant that is smaller that's not able to run as many um, sorry, it was from National Beef. I, I, I just realized that they have opened up an, a new plant in Iowa, but it's not as large. There's not as many animals that they could run through each day. And they take a $120 hit per animal to run in that smaller plant. So it, it that that has to be passed back somewhere. You know, we can't, there are reasons why we have larger plants. The problem is, you know, we have these black swan events. So how do we manage the manage what could be coming and making sure that that food dollar goes back to producers. And, and interestingly too, you know, one, sometimes we get these charts that are able to be shared as well. We have these big, big chunks, right? Retailer, retailer and, and farmer and processor. And the retailer actually has a lot of the food dollar and that's not getting me as much attention. That's true. A lot of it is in the hands of the middlemen. We appreciate Jackie Fatka's insights. Jackie, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And folks, stick with us. We'll continue this meat conversation in segment two with Brian Ernest from CoBank. So stay with us here on AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Soil, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Soil Ship Enterprise to explore soil life, to boldly grow where cover crops have never grown before. Farmer's Log, soil date 31655.4. We've come across some strange but incredibly helpful life forms. We didn't have to travel far to find them, but these organisms have proven invaluable on our trip through the solar system. They help feed us by nourishing and protecting our crops. They've built our soil structure to make it more resilient to the harsh weather we encounter. Our sensors indicate they're even helping us store carbon that plants take out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil. I guess you can say our living and life-giving soil is the best thing to cling on to. Um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> That's soil fleet humor. <laughs> Visit your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today and learn more about the basics and benefits of soil health. This message brought to you by USDA and this radio station. Time is money, right? And money? Well, it's the whole reason we go to work every day. Cenex Premium Diesel protects both. With a more complete additive package for a more complete burn, Cenex Roadmaster XL helps your entire fuel system stay up and running, so you can count more profits and steer clear of losses. Now don't spend all that free time in one place, unless it's the highway. Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Tough 5EC is a selective contact post-emergent herbicide that synergizes HPPD inhibitors and enhances the effect of atrazine. Tough 5EC works fast and can significantly improve the control of weeds such as water hemp, palmer, and kochia today and help prevent the selection of herbicide resistance tomorrow. Tough 5EC is in stock and ready to ship. Ask your local retailer about Tough 5EC or visit BelgiumUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. 180 over 111 and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92 and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100 and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Thanks for tuning in today to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. We have been talking a lot on this program and on nearly every other news program about the impact of inflation across the economy. Of course, it is no stranger to folks on the animal production side of agriculture. One guy who has been researching this in depth is Brian Ernest, the lead economist for animal protein at the CoBank Knowledge Division. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me on, Mike. Let's talk first about the higher prices that we're seeing on the uh, in front of meat producers here, the animal protein experts here in this country. Brian, let's talk of the cattle market first. How much have you seen margins deteriorate here over the past two or three years in the cattle sector? Well, you know, the cattle sector has, has faced quite a few different um, headwinds in, in terms of uh, you know, some of the, the factors that play into grow out. Um, drought certainly has been an issue uh, over the last couple of years and, and has uh, become more increasingly a, a challenge, especially for, for Western cattle feeders, uh, you know, here in the last two years. Um, in, in addition to that, uh, as we transition and move those, uh, those animals through to, uh, uh, you know, through the, the feedlots, uh, beginning to see more impact from these higher corn and and soybean prices uh, as, as that impacts the feed side of the equation. Um, and, and, you know, that, that we, were, we were looking at that here coming into 2022, um, and, and now we have an additional factor on top of just uh, tighter global stocks with, um, you know, the invasion of, uh, of Russia into Ukraine. So, um, you know, that, that continues to be a, a, a challenge, I think, you know, not only the current period, but as we move through 2022. It is going to be an ongoing concern. Brian, on the beef side, we saw the cattle on feed report last week. It looks like a lot of these animals are moving off of dried out pasture, dried out wheat ground and into feedlots. Do you anticipate any break coming this year for uh, for cattle producers, particularly those feeding cattle? 
Um, you know, no, I, I think we're, we're probably looking for um, uh, these stronger supplies in terms of, of on-feed numbers as we get into the fall time frame. Um, you know, it, it does look like harvest is picking up a little bit or the slaughter rates are picking up a little bit. So moving through that cattle, um, you know, hopefully it's, it's, it's able to work down supplies, um, uh, you know, through the, the stronger months for, for meat demand here. Uh, through the spring and into the summer, um, you know, overall that, that should work to the, the favor. Um, but behind the cattle that are on feed, there's uh, there's a tight supply from the cow-calf operations as well. Um, you know, we, I, I think looking at those first quarter numbers, uh, so the, the cattle or the cow slaughter numbers um, really strong. I think they're up seven and a half percent from a year ago. So, um, you know, just that number tells us that behind uh, what we've got, um, you know, tighter supplies and out of that an expectation that we're going to see high price environment for those cattle um, uh, here in, 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 you know, the second half of 2022 and, and beyond as, as we look at those replacements, um, you, know, you know, being down or that supply being down. All right. Over on the hog side, the pork production side of the equation, Brian, we've seen that industry squeezed by tighter margins as well. What are some of the big picture things you've noticed on the hog side over the last year? Well, we talk about, um, you know, labor being an issue uh, throughout the protein industry. It looks like it's it's a little bit tighter um, on, on the hog side of the business. Just looking at the throughput numbers, um, and the, the slaughter numbers at the plants, um, they're, they're down a little bit stronger than, than either chicken or, or uh, beef, um, sitting about 7% below year-ago levels or, or below 2020 levels um, in, in the year-to-date. So, um, you know, overall, the processing, it doesn't seem to be picking up, and the amount of availability even behind that uh, sow population down somewhat, and um, you know that that again, it looks like through 2022, um, not a lot is, is pushing towards those numbers uh, growing, um, and and um, so you know again, it looks like red meat in total, kind of a similar story in terms of um, availability as we move through this year, um, and um, you know overall that's been very supportive to prices. Uh, the, the, you know, the latest hogs and pigs report, um, you know, stimulated some interest in terms of market conditions. And, and it seems like the market continues to try and price in this expectation that we've got uh, tighter supplies overall on the hog side as well. Looking over at poultry, Brian, high path avian influenza has been moving through the poultry sector. As I understand it, primarily amongst turkeys and egg layers, what's the impact you've seen on the poultry side on production? Um, yeah, from a production standpoint, you're, you're spot on. You're seeing the same thing I'm looking at in terms of uh, broiler production has, has been fairly minimal impact, um, and, and, and a lot of the, the reductions or the depopulations have largely occurred for egg layers. Um, I think the num- latest numbers are up over 20 million, um, which is a, a you know, fairly drastic reduction from an already tighter supply of, um, of egg-producing layers. Um, from a broiler standpoint, you know, maybe a bit of concern just in terms of how big the export portion of the, the disappearance equation has been for chicken over the last couple of years uh, and the additional reliance on exports that that industry has, has moved to uh, over the last two years. Primarily that impacts the dark meat um, side of the equation. But what we're seeing now versus the last time we had outbreaks of high-path AI in 2015 is that there's uh, been more of a regional or, um, you know, um, uh, state or county level impact in terms of the closure of export markets of U.S. poultry. Um, so in, in that case, um, you know, the, the supply impact been minimal for, for chicken. Turkey will probably see something, um, you, you know, out of this. We had tight turkey supplies anyways. Um, and, and as we move through the year and prepare for Thanksgiving, we're likely sitting in a situation where they're, they're just not going to be able to make up, um, you know, that deficit that they're, they're seeing from reducing those flocks on the turkey side. 
And whenever we see that reduction in supply, we see prices move higher. Brian, yesterday you published a report titled Consumers to Take on Higher Prices in the Meat Case This Summer, looking at the impact of inflation on the consumer. And you had a note in there that beef demand has defied expectations here over the past two or three years. Brian, what did you learn as you were putting this report together? So if you if you chart really looking at um, at consumption, uh, so we we just want to look at demand itself in terms of the price response out of the consumer. Um, from 2000 through 2015, we really saw um, uh, beef consumption ease back. Right, it went from about 68 pounds per capita and down into the mid 50s. Largely, this was a response to price. We also saw some contraction in the industry and you know some some different variables in it. Um, but as we've as we look at the time since then, from 2015 forward, um, you know a little bit of a price response, but overall over the last three years we've seen a strong response in terms of just overall demand and gravitation towards uh, towards beef, and, and um, it's it's really gone against that that um, that higher price that consumers are paying or willing to pay. At the counter. Um, so now, you know, the, it, through 2021, uh, consumers took on some of that higher price that, that beef producers were paying. Um, but now we're going to see even more of that, I think, transition out of the consumer as we see more food service business pick up and limited growth from uh, from red meat in general. So that uh, as long as that theme continues that the consumer is willing to pay up, um, you know, we'll, we'll continue to see that strong demand stick around at least uh, this year and, and potentially into 2023. Brian, are higher beef prices encouraging consumers to look at pork or chicken? Do you see uh, changes developing in the marketing of those two other proteins? That is kind of the traditional pattern, right? When we look throughout the last 10 years, we would expect that, um, you know, income constraints would lead consumers down the meat case. Um, that hasn't necessarily been the case yet. Um, but, you know, we, we, we have had a, a, an exorbitant amount of stimulus pumped into the economy. So the ability to, uh, you know, offset those higher prices has been stronger. Uh, in 2020 and 2021, um, in, in, you know, in this year, as we see the, the effects of uh, tighter income constraints, we may start to see that, but we haven't quite yet. You know, it's, it's uh, overall the protein segment of the grocery store uh, has, has um, you know, seen really good support from the consumer. Uh, food service business, uh, you know, it's been kind of an unknown over the last two years, right? But now we're we're starting to see some data that suggests that um, even though that food service business is coming back, uh, consumers are still uh, still uh, picking up the the, the ha or they're they're gravitating towards the habits they've picked up they're... during the pandemic in, in the last two years. All right. Well, that was Brian Ernest of CoBank. We'll be back for more at AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. As planting season begins across the country, the American Seed Trade Association reminds farmers to follow the basic steps for seed treatment stewardship. Follow directions on seed container labeling. Eliminate weeds in the field prior to planting. Minimize dust by using advanced seed flow lubricants. Be aware of honeybees and hives located near the field. Ensure that any spilled seeds are removed or covered by soil to protect wildlife and the environment. And remove all treated seed left in equipment. For more information, visit seed-treatment-guide.com or contact your seed dealer. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we take a look at the market trade, looking at grains, the general trend in the grain and oilseed sector, the broader trend remains steady to higher, supported by a combo of solid supply and demand fundamentals and inflation play by fund managers taking advantage of those fundamentals. Headwinds are increasing with the dollar now trading at 19-year highs and the VIX showing elevated fear levels, yet 
The market reflecting solid demand with risk for more supply shocks in the weeks and months ahead. As soils continue to dry out across much of the northern half of Brazil's Safrina Corn Belt, as the crop moves through pollination and early grain fill, and we're also watching weather concerns here in the U.S. Private exporters reported sales of 1,088,000 metric tons of corn to China this morning. Of the total, 476,000 is for the current marketing year, with the rest for the new crop marketing year. Now, grains have backed off a little bit after we set new contract highs overnight in corn and spring wheat, but we are starting to... Uh, Kind of firm up here in the quarter wheat market with the soy complex still under a bit of pressure so far this morning. Weekly export sales were all right for quarter beans. Wheat was pretty dismal. Beef and pork were okay. Pork was noticeably higher than last week's marketing year low. Right now, May quarter up one and a half, eight seventeen. December quarter up three, seven fifty-two and a half. May beans down twelve and three quarters, seventeen thirteen to three quarters. November down three, fifteen twenty-one to three quarters. May bean meal down five ninety a ton, four forty-five ten. May bean oil down nine points, eighty-seven seventy-one. May Chicago wheat up three quarters, ten eighty at three quarters. May Kansas City wheat down eight and a quarter, eleven forty. May spring wheat up four and a quarter at twelve oh three. May lean hogs down 55, wattle 362. April feeders down 47, 155, 72. April live cattle up 50, 139 even. Crude oil up 45 cents a barrel, 102.47. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma. Not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in today. You know, every Thursday, the drought monitor gets released from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. This morning's was out, and I tell you what, folks, half of this country, basically the entire western half, a line from the North Dakota-Minnesota straight line all the way down to Texas, and then we can add in Louisiana all of those states are grappling with one form or another of drought. In agriculture in this country, the fight over water is here to stay and securing access to and then managing those water resources are going to be a huge goal and huge challenge that we face as a country. And a lot of these topics are under discussion this week in Washington, D.C., because it is Water Week. Joining me today to talk about water and how we could be a better steward, potentially, of this very important natural resource. I'm joined now by Pat Sinacropi. She's the executive director of the Water Reuse Association. Pat, thanks for talking to us today. Nice to be nice to join you. Let's talk first about the Water Reuse Association. What are you guys? What do you do? <clears throat> Uh, well, the Water Reuse Association is a trade association. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, we represent uh, water utilities um, and businesses that are uh, that are working with communities, uh, businesses, agricultural producers uh, to provide uh, recycled water for a number of beneficial re beneficial uses, including for crop irrigation. And agriculture, and uh, uh, as I said, we've been uh, 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 the only sole trade association focused on uh, water recycling for the past 30 years. We advocate here in Washington for sound policies uh, with respect to water recycling, and our uh, state sections. We have about eight 
sections working in uh, states such as California and Texas, uh, Pacific Northwest, Arizona, uh, and they're quite active on the state level advocating for uh, sound state policies uh, and funding uh, to support uh, water recycling. So, Pat, you mentioned water reuse. You've been around since 1990. This is not a new thing, but it's certainly getting more press now as this these droughts intensify. For our listeners who are unfamiliar with really the concept of water recycling, how does it work? Well, water recycling basically is uh, <clears throat> is just what it sounds. We take uh, we take wastewater, uh, different feedstocks of water, whether it's uh, from a municipal wastewater treatment facility or uh, whether it's rainwater falling on the ground that would otherwise be um, drained into surface water bo bodies. Um, <clears throat> and we uh, treat it to standards that are required to then use that treated water, uh, treated cleaner water for the beneficial, for a beneficial reuse such as irrigation or uh, cooling, um, or even drinking, um, drinking water. So how do, so once the, the water recycler takes in the, the, the product that they are going to treat and recycle, then when it's going back out, does it just go into the conventional water supply system that serves that area, or does it typically need to be handled separately? Um, well, it depends. Uh, it depends um, on the application you're using. Some, uh, some recycled water is uh, then uh, remains in the recycled water system, sort of a closed loop system. Um, um, but if you're doing, if you're, if you're using the recycled water for irrigating crops, uh, it is then put back into the environment. Um, uh, to either drain through normal drainage systems or uh, canals that feed it back into uh, wastewater or water treatment systems. So it just so depends Pat, this, on. Oops. Um, it just depends on the application in the in the project. Okay. Well, that certainly makes sense. It all it all matters as to where it is going. Pat, as have. I've seen this come into the news more recently, but of course I'm not as plugged into this industry as you are. As you think about conversations around water recycling and, and using those concepts and putting them into practice, have you seen interest in the technology been growing here recently? Oh, definitely, certainly. Um, a lot of growth over the last five to 10 years in large part driven by uh, the drought in the, in the West. <clears throat> but also driven by uh, other resiliency issues related to climate change um, in the east and driven by a lot of water quality concerns, um, nutrient pollution in surface water bodies. So they, these are all drivers that we've seen um, play a role in accelerating the attention and adoption of water recycling practices in the last five to ten years. And with and that momentum building are you starting mm -hmm. to see some federal interest in uh, in developing these programs is there any sort of assistance program out there to, to get more of these test uh, studies set up oh yeah quite a bit quite a bit and we're and we're pleased uh that of the federal interest in the last several years um in fact under the previous administration the uh, epa launched a water recycling initiative uh, and uh, issued a national water reuse action plan that uh, adopted some 50 to 60 action items um, to, to focus and promote water recycling in a number of different uh, fields and applications. And just this past uh, year, last year, with the bipartisan infrastructure legislation, we, uh, Congress uh, appropriated about a billion dollars in water recycling investments, uh, primarily for the West, um, and uh, also authorized a, uh, the first nationwide uh, water recycling grant program through the EPA, which which we're quite excited about. But um, yeah, uh, an interest on the federal level has has uh, re very much accelerated in the past two or three years. And that pilot program certainly sounds interesting. Could you talk a little bit about what sort of pilots you anticipate funding with uh, with this grant program? Oh, 
I think they'll they'll range in um, pilots uh, that uh, that support farmers and the uh, irrigation uh, needs that they have in uh, areas such as the southeast, uh, the west. Um, we'll probably see uh, more uh, managed aquifer recharge program uh, pilot projects along the east coast, <clears throat> where we're seeing saltwater intrusion. Um, and over pumping of groundwater resources, uh, depleting coastal aquifers, um, that, uh, and that consequently leads to more flooding, subsidence, um, sea level rise. So, uh, so I think you'll see a lot of different um, pilot projects uh, emerge from the assistance that, the, uh, that this new program will be providing. Well, that will certainly be interesting to watch, particularly in those areas that just keep getting hit with these recurring long-term droughts. I know that you at the, the Water Reuse Association, you have done some work with agricultural products specifically. Mm -hmm. Pat, could you talk through some mm -hmm. of the places that agriculture and municipalities in some cases have been able to work together to better manage their water resources? Well, of course, California um, provides a lot of recycled water for crops, um, for, for uh, irrigated crops, uh, produce. Um, a great example of that is the work that's being done in Monterey, California, uh, the salad bowl of the country. Uh, Monterey has a great program where they are capturing stormwater um, and recycling effluent to help local farmers uh, irrigate their, um, their uh, uh, salad, uh, lettuce, crops. Um, Idaho, 98% um, of the recycled water that is permitted in Idaho uh, provides irrigation for uh, potato farmers in the state, uh, supporting that industry. Uh, we have great examples in Florida with citrus farmers um, in uh, Orange County that uh, is, uh, uh, the farmers there are, are, are irrigating over 2,000 acres of citrus groves uh, with recycled water. So there, there are a number of examples across the country in almost every region of the country where uh, local farmers and local utilities and uh, water, uh, water management districts are working together to uh, provide uh, recycled water for irrigating agricultural produce. Yeah, these projects are already out there. They're already doing good. Pat, Water Week going on right now in Washington, D.C. What is the Water Reuse Association pushing for this week while well, you've got the ear of the folks in D.C.? Well, we're pushing on a lot of fronts. We're uh, reminding Congress that there's some unfinished business. Um, unfortunately, we weren't able to secure funding in the Build Back Better uh, uh, package that has been stalled. We'd like to see that move forward. There's $25 million more uh, dollars in that package to, to, uh, to, to get out uh, to, uh, to, uh, to the public. Um, we're reminding Congress that uh, we want to also make sure that the federal government goes forward and implements the and begins the interagency working group on water reuse, which we um, established in the in the uh, bipartisan infrastructure legislation. This is a federal working group that would work across the federal family, uh, USDA, EPA, Department of Interior, to. Uh, coordinate and collaborate on water reuse. All right, lots of progress being made in D.C. Folks, we've been talking to Pat Sinekropi, the Executive Director of the Water Reuse Association. Pat, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And folks, you can learn more at their website, waterreuse1r.org. And stay with us. We'll be talking to Mike Milley from Join Bio when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. 
Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference, bite by bite. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Smart stays on the road. That's why it's in your engine. Because you wouldn't settle for subpar performance. Cenex Maxtron synthetic diesel engine oils give you the smartest oil for the toughest conditions. These premium oils maintain 80% of their viscosity throughout the drain interval for superior engine performance across extreme temperatures. That horizon looks good with the competition behind you. Cenex Maxtron diesel engine oils. Oil that runs smart. Mike Rowe here with a gentle reminder that civilization is held together by pipes, wires, and cables. It's true. There are over 5 million miles of gas lines, power lines, fiber optic lines, water lines, and sewer lines all buried beneath your feet. And every 60 seconds, somebody digs into one. Look, if you're thinking about digging around, do yourself a favor and call 811 first just to find out what's down there. Trust me. You don't want to find out the hard way. Call or click 811 before you dig and visit safeexcavator.com for more info. We're speaking with Tom Wood. He's the president and general manager of Belsham. And Tom, Belsham is bringing a product to the Corn Belt. Tell us, what are you guys bringing to farmers? Weed scientists would say to include multiple modes of action in your weed management program. So we're introducing Tough or Pyridate, which is a group six herbicide with no known resistance. Um, and it provides another valuable tool for growers to address resistant weeds like water hemp, kochia, palmer lamb's quarter, and it also advances the grower's ability to control the seed bank. So what we're bringing is another mode of action for the grower's toolbox to help them address resistant weeds and improve their control. So Tom, tell us, how does Tough 5EC work? We've positioned Tough 5EC as a tank mix in your integrated weed management program, and Tough works with HPPD chemistries, it synergizes with HPPD chemistries to increase your control. So what does it do? Puridate increases free radicals that disrupt cell membranes and causes the plant cells to collapse. The HPPDs reduce the plant's ability to detoxify those free radicals. So it's a, a more complete kill. And if you add atrazine, which is a, you know, in a normal program, that actual works with atrazine and the speed to kill. So in layman's terms, I like to say, pyridate destroys the cell membranes, the HPPDs reduces the plant's ability to defend itself. And when you add the foliar or contact herbicide of tough with atrazine that has uh, some foliar effect, but more of a, a systemic effect through the roots, you get a, a more complete and a quicker speed to kill. Folks, we've heard from Tom Wood, President and General Manager of Belsham USA. Tom, thanks for joining us. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around.
information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Yesterday on the program, in this very segment, fourth segment on yesterday's show, we spoke with Josh Linville, the director of fertilizer over at Stonex, and he reiterated for us the elevated prices of fertilizer. He talked about a few places we might be seeing a little bit of a price correction, but his overall theme was there is tightness in this supply chain globally. And these elevated prices are going to be with us for some time. That's not great news for a lot of folks there on the ground who are looking at very expensive input costs for this year. And it's got the industry of agriculture looking around for better ways to optimize our nitrogen use on the farm. And one of the directions the industry is going to look for ways we can do that better is biologicals. There was a headline out earlier this week that there is a new move in that space with Join Bio. And joining us to discuss these changes taking place in the biologicals is Mike Milley. He is the CEO of Join Bio. And Mike, thanks for joining us today. Oh, great to be here, Mike. Thanks. Let's talk. Join was in the news earlier this week. What are some of the big changes happening over there at Join? So we, uh, we were founded about four, four and a half years ago as a joint venture uh, between Bayer and Ginkgo Bioworks, a leading synthetic biology company. Uh, and just last week, we announced that uh, we're actually going to take the, the joint, joint venture and take the success that we've had, move it into Ginkgo Bioworks, and at the same time, combine it with the Bayer Biologics uh, unit from Bayer and create what'll be a, a powerhouse uh, biological development company uh, inside of Ginkgo, but supported by Bayer uh, with one of the key projects that they're uh, financing being nitrogen fixation. So let's talk about nitrogen fixation. Mike, how is JOIN moving nitrogen fixation to the next level? So it's really a question of, um, in our case, what we do is, is engineer microbes. We actually uh, optimize and engineer them with the latest synthetic biology technology. And the whole idea is to, to, to find a microbe that we can that optimize that fixes nitrogen from the air, converts it to a usable form of nitrogen for a corn plant, and can, re can replace some of that synthetic fertilizer that that corn plant needs today. So the whole concept is to find a microbe that can go out as a seed treatment and that it'll colonize or grow with the corn plant, provide that nitrogen, and allow a grower to reduce their synthetic fertilizer input by 40 to 50% and have the same yield. I think that's the, the key piece of this is to, to keep the economics with the grower and at the same time significantly reduce the need for synthetic fertilizer inputs. Indeed. And this year, just like last year, we're seeing elevated prices for those fertilizer inputs. Mike, what's the timeline for the availability of, of a microbe like this, a tool like this, to actually be in the farmer's toolbox uh, in production? I think that, you know, again, it, it's it's not tomorrow, unfortunately. And it, it's interesting to me, we, when we started this venture three, four years ago, we, we thought of this as a, as a moonshot. This was a, a kind of the holy grail. Um, we're still probably a good three to four years away from actually having a product that can go out as a seed treatment. We actually hope that we can get out there sooner with a product that can go on uh, on on farm. But it's uh, we're still you know we're still a couple years away from having that type of performance, from being able to to really reduce that synthetic fertilizer input by that that forty to fifty percent. Do you see the industry as a whole looking a lot more seriously at the biological approach to uh, to dealing with crop concerns? I do. I think it's uh, and I think there's a number of drivers. One of the biggest ones is having to, coming up with products that are uh, sustainable uh, and at the same time can uh, deliver performance that growers have traditionally looked to chemicals and plant traits for. Um, I think the other part of this is that growers are always looking for new modes of action, I mean, and, and for rotation. And I think biologicals and the microbial solutions offer up an alternative to these chemical approaches that uh, have traditionally been so effective for them. So 
we really see this as an area that's going to expand significantly over the next decade, uh, and particularly when it comes to unmet needs around things like nitrogen fixation, carbon sequestration, phosphate, and such. They're, they're uniquely, microbes are uniquely uh, set up to deliver solutions that chemicals cannot. And so now with this change happening at, at join, rather, excuse me, what are the next steps? Mike, as, as CEO, as you plot the future, what are you targeting here uh, in your role? Well, initially for the, for the next 12 months or so, it's to bring together the, the projects and the work we've done at join for the last three or four years and integrate that with the work that the Bayer Biologics team in West Sacramento has done uh, we've got six or seven projects there that are all ongoing and are targeted to be delivered to buyer. And then in conjunction, in addition to that, uh, we're looking at uh, adding several other partners for other product concepts and other products. So it's, a, it's an exciting time for us. And uh, it's really, you know, for us, it's really, fun. it's really exciting to see uh, the growing interest and the growing opportunities for these biological solutions to complement and add to the, the, uh, the chemical and the plant trait solutions that are out there today. More tools just make us better as we get used to using them. Mike, for listeners who wanna learn more about Join and the team, where can they go for more information? Uh, I think the best place is the, the join, uh, joinbio.com, so our, uh, our website. And uh, from there, you can get the information you need and uh, follow up with us directly if you want to. Uh, the, you know, the contact is in the, uh, in the website. So uh, look forward to hearing from folks. And uh, as I said, it's uh, exciting times, I think, on the biological front for, for all of us in that space in the, uh, in the ag area. Indeed, it will be neat to see what comes out of it in the coming years. And that's join, J-O-Y-N, bio, B-I-O dot com. Thanks to Mike Milley for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. Really enjoyed it. Take care. And folks, tune in tomorrow. We're going to be talking broad picture economics with Bill Hoagland. We're also going to be talking markets with Garrett Toy. We'll see you on Friday for AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Okay, gotta be late. Gotta go, gotta go. Where'd I put... Ah, wallet. Check. And... Oh, phone. Uh, check. Keys. Check. Lunch. Check. Checking for the things you need doesn't take long. But what about checking for your safety? Right now, one in every five vehicles on the road has an open safety recall, but it only takes seconds to check for open recalls on your car at checktoprotect.org. All you need is your vehicle identification number or license plate number. Your automaker may not have the right information to notify you about recalls by mail, especially if you recently moved or drive an older or used car. Checktoprotect.org is the quick, easy way to find out if your vehicle has an open safety recall and find the closest dealer who can make the repair for free. Oh, oh, laptop. Check. Before you go, take a minute. Visit Checktoprotect.org. Check to Protect is a program of the National Safety Council.